This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Value-Based Care and Reimbursement. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. In 1776, the Founding Fathers declared independence for the United States of America. Back then, medicine was generally handled domestically. Family members, typically the women, were responsible for treating illnesses with home remedies. Babies were delivered at home by midwives, and the most common treatments were heat, cold, plants, and herbs. It was only for very serious or life-threatening illnesses that doctors were summoned, making house calls. Physicians with rigorous medical and scientific training and degrees weren't very common. The first medical college in the United States was opened at the University of Pennsylvania in 1765. By the 1800s, the U.S. was becoming more industrialized, more urbanized, and germ theory started to prevail around the world. Epidemics of infectious diseases such as tuberculosis, yellow fever, and cholera led to the creation of many local health departments and the beginning of government-sponsored health care. Local governments began building hospitals, at first to treat the poor and then to treat everyone. Science advanced, leading to the development of new diagnostic testing, treatments, and vaccinations. Public health projects expanded to not only fight diseases, but to also prevent them. As the 19th century was coming to a close, the U.S. started to see the beginnings of private health insurance to cover the increasing costs of health care. Now fast forward to 1970, and U.S. health care spending totals a massive amount, $74 billion. But 
that wasn't the end. The number kept increasing, and by 2000, it has reached $1.4 trillion. In the past 20 years, healthcare spending has tripled, with the amount in 2021 reaching $4.3 trillion. Where is all this money going? Mostly, it's to treat chronic illnesses, such as heart disease, diabetes, and asthma. The Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality estimates that the care of chronic illnesses makes up 78% of U.S. healthcare expenditures. So how do we control these ballooning costs of healthcare while still providing high quality and high value to our patients? To help answer this question, I have invited two value-based care experts to our program. I am pleased to introduce MedNet veteran Associate Professor Dr. Aaron Clark, who serves as the chair of Ohio State Wexner Medical Center's Department of Family and Community Medicine. He is also the medical director of value-based care and accountable care organization at OSU. And we are also joined by Dr. Sandeep Palakadetti, who is an internist and primary care doctor an entrepreneur who has founded two healthcare organizations, Hopscotch Health and Michico. He also has previously served as the Chief Population Health Officer at University Hospitals in Cleveland. All right, thank you Thanks, guys Dr. so Mara. much for being on the program. It's great to be here. Aaron, uh, where are, what are some of the ways that we can measure value in healthcare? Measuring value in healthcare is one of those things that is really challenging. There's a lot of metrics that are being used nowadays, and value-based care is one of the arenas and where we're really trying to figure out where is that value. And really, when we think about value, at the end of the day, as you'll learn in our discussion today, value is providing high-quality care at an affordable price. Okay. And Sandeep, what exactly is wrong with our fee-for-service model? Doesn't it make sense to pay for the services that were received? Well, Dr. Miles, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with being reimbursed for the things that we do. I think it's how we're paying for things that is this real shift in, in value-based care. Uh, in our traditional fee-for-service model, when we focus on volume and having more folks go through the system in order to be profitable and sustain our practices, we we end up incentivizing things like doing more procedures or, or more tests or seeing more patients rather than being able to back up and focus on entire panel and population care for their needs holistically. Okay. Thanks, Sandeep. Before we get started with today's program, I wanted to let you know about our podcast. You can listen to all 120 of our programs via podcast by searching for MedNet 21 CME on your podcast player. Also, if you have any questions about any of our programs, or if you have a suggestion for a program you'd like to see, you can send them to us using the ask a question feature on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get started. Aaron? Thanks, Dr. Mao. Today we have an agenda that we're going to try and get through with you that talks about these emerging models and expansion into some of the areas of primary care, such as retail space. What is the importance of value-based care and how is that related to population health? What are some of the keys to succeeding in those kinds of environments? Interesting discussion coming up on future directions for this environment and hopefully some good discussion towards the end of the, the program. So we do have a couple of learning objectives that we would love to be able to achieve during the course of the next uh, you know, 40 minutes or so. Uh, we want to help folks understand these emerging models and the future com competitive landscape that we find ourselves in, particularly as primary care clinicians. Um, we want to get through some of the background and, and kind of describe some of the basic tenets of population health. How did we get here? Why are we in this environment today? What is population health? What is value-based care? 
understanding some of these key elements to success in value-based care arrangements. What we've done in the past will not work for what we need to do in the future, and how do we make that transition? Understanding these prominent shifts that are happening in our industry, uh, Sandeep and I will be describing in detail as the pr presentation goes on, um, there's a lot of innovation and change happening in this space, as I'm sure everybody is feeling at the moment. Our disclosures are listed here. And now I'm going to turn it over to Sandy. Thanks, Aaron. Well, for any of you that have been keeping up with the news and staying close to the space, you're seeing some of these headlines, these eye-popping numbers, folks like CVS, Amazon, Walgreens, Walmart, all moving into healthcare. And it leaves us scratching our heads a little bit trying to understand what is it about healthcare that's attractive to these companies and, and what are they looking for? Why are there such high valuations in these organizations? And what are some of these folks doing that we might be able to learn from when it comes to uh, value-based care? Um, we see this shift from you know, volume to value, and we'll talk a lot about this, but really focusing on healthcare outcomes, on quality and experience, and that's what a lot of these organizations are seeing. And so we're gonna unpack a few of these recent um, uh, deals and, and acquisitions and talk about some of the lessons that we could learn from that. As some of you have heard, Amazon uh, recently purchased One Medical um, last year. This was a nearly $4 billion acquisition. There was actually a, a bit of a bidding war. A lot of big organizations, including CVS, who we'll talk about next, were, were looking to purchase One Medical. Uh, for those of you that don't know, One Medical started as uh, kind of a membership-based uh, model uh, focused on commercial-aged individuals. Uh, they ended up purchasing another organization called Iora, which was focused on Medicare and Medicare Advantage patients. And so what's interesting now is Amazon, with the purchase of One Medical, has a physical footprint in healthcare serving both adults and, and commercial-aged folks as well as seniors. And Really, the Amazon story started much before this one medical deal. Uh, as some of you may have heard, they had uh, launched something called Amazon Cares. Um, a uh, renowned surgeon and physician, Dr. Tul Gawande, led that. And unfortunately, that, that didn't pan out. And I think Amazon learned a hard lesson on the challenges in healthcare. This is one of their next sort of uh, movements into the space. They also tried uh, PillPack, which was a pharmacy sort of integration. And so you can see Amazon is really trying to bring together now multiple different aspects of the healthcare industry all under one roof. And, and increasingly, we are seeing patients start to, to choose organizations like this for their care, uh, certainly in the acute care space. If you go on Amazon right now, you can look at Amazon Clinic and get a visit for a UTI or a URI or uh, any number of conditions. Switching over to CVS, as I mentioned, um, you know, CVS was uh, was actually trying to, to purchase uh, One Medical initially and, and uh, was you know, outbid by Amazon, but CVS uh, is, is a huge organization now. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about their journey here next, but this year uh, they have purchased Oak Street Health for $10 billion. Oak Street, for those of you that don't know, is um, a, a senior-focused uh, organization. They serve about 150,000 individuals. They really focus on uh, quality, on exceptional experience, and on containing that cost of care. And so CVS and all these other health plans and payers that we see out there are starting to look around at organizations like this and say, 
you know, we have this opportunity to partner with primary care organizations who are delivering exceptional quality as, as we've defined in this value space and actually drive the bottom line in some ways as well. Um, when you back up and, and look at CVS's broader sort of uh, strategy here, it, it started years ago. Uh, they, they bought Aetna in 2018 for nearly $70 billion, one of the biggest healthcare deals uh, to date. And, and everyone was wondering how that was going to sort of play together. You have a mom and pop, you know, pharmacy store on the uh, corner of every Main Street America now owning one of the largest health insurers in the country. Uh, and you can sort of see time, as time marches on, they've built more and more infrastructure around this value-based uh, care stack that they are bringing together. They've uh, acquired and hired folks from all over the industry, uh, high-powered executives. They've moved into the telehealth space and the uh, virtual care space. And, and now with their uh, sort of purchase of Oak Street and, and uh, signifies will show they're really bringing together an entire fully integrated what we call the verticalization of healthcare and something that you'll see is actually happening across all payers in the industry. This is directly from the CVS and, and Oak Street investor presentation when they mentioned this. Um, you know, actually last year, CVS purchased another organization called Signify. Some of you may have worked with them before. They are a home health provider, uh, a coding provider. I think some of these numbers here are pretty interesting. As we mentioned, Oak Street serves about 160,000 patients uh, across 170 medical centers. And, and they were purchased for $10 billion, as we said, by CVS. Uh, as you can see on the right here, CVS serves more than 100 million uh, patients in some way or form in the United States uh, through their PBM, through Caremark, through Aetna. One in three of us are touched by this. So interestingly, you know, when you look at the numbers here, an Oak Street acquisition adds to Aetna's overall patient base by, by less than 1%, certainly. Uh, but the point here that CVS is trying to convey and that many others are trying to convey is now we have an entire line of sight onto the whole journey that a patient might be going through, whether they are accessing their primary care doc, whether they need their pharmacist and their, their medications, whether they're in the hospital on a, a bundle or they're transitioned to home and, and needing care in the home. Now an organization like uh, Aetna and CVS can fully integrate all those services without having to contract individually with all of these different entities. You know, I'm not a financial analyst, but I thought that this was pretty interesting. CVS, you know, they were downgraded in their financial impact score uh, last year. And the biggest reason for that was because of a lack of quality in healthcare. And this is where we really want to tie together that while Oak Street, you know, has been a, a profitable organization and has driven results, really an organization like CVS um, gains, stands to benefit from the acquisition of Oak Street. They send a message that quality is extremely important to them. When CVS missed their mark on stars across a, a few Medicare books of business that they owned, they were then, you know, in future years, not allowed to tap into certain shared savings. That's why that financial impact goes down. So acquiring organizations, partnering with high quality organizations that deliver, you know, exceptional patient results is what will ultimately drive the bottom line for a lot of these organizations as well and, and why they're seeing so much impact here. 
So we want to bring this together and, and show you all what we mean by this vertical integration. It's, it's happening across most uh, insurers, payers. These are the folks that are paying us for the care that we're delivering to our patients. And, uh, you know, outside of the payers, as we mentioned, there are other organizations like Amazon and, and Walgreens and, and CVS and others that are, are now moving into this space. But what's important here to understand is each one of these major payers now controls the premium dollar, they control the PBMs and the, the flow of pharmacy and pharmacy dollars, and importantly now they're all adding these provider services. And the question to us should be, well, why is that? What is it about some of these organizations that all of these payers, all of these other uh, you know, big uh, players are, are starting to understand? Even folks like Walmart are are moving into this space very heavily, and, and we will continue to see this kind of vertical integration. So we wanted to unpack a bit, what is it about these primary care value-based organizations that are so important and so highly valued for these organizations, for patients, and for the market? So if you'll follow along the slide here a bit, we are showing uh, four different big organizations, value-based organizations in the space. Uh, Caremore and Aspire, we see Oak Street, which we've talked about, ChenMed, which is many of our, our communities, and Iora, which I mentioned was, was bought by One Medical. You can see some of the similarities in, in these um, organizations. Most of them, frankly, focus on Medicare and Medicare Advantage organizations, and we'll talk about why uh, later on in the, in the conversation. I think an important thing here in red that we highlighted is the panel size for most of these organizations. In the United States, a typical primary care physician is caring for something like two to 3,000 patients. In these kinds of organizations, you know, three, four, 500 patients, uh, uh, clinicians and teams really have the opportunity to spend time to do panel management, to back up and focus on the tenants of population management, which, which Dr. Clark will talk about here in just a few moments. But, you know, wanted to highlight some of the satisfaction and the engagement that we're seeing with these organizations. Again, you know, we, we are starting to see patients, you know, vote with their feet. And, and while we are all doing our best to provide the best care that we can, when they see that there are opportunities to spend an hour with their clinician and have all of these other services and have a full interdisciplinary team, uh, servicing their needs, it is an attractive sort of option. So, you know, we have talked now about the verticalization, the, the move of retail health into uh, into healthcare, and, and why some of these organizations are uh, important in what they're doing. Um, so, we'd like to now talk a little bit more about the tenets of value-based care and population health, and, and why these organizations are successful, and what we can learn in our own practices. So, I'll turn it back over to Dr. Clark now. Thanks, Sandeep. So I'd like to take us on a journey just through some of the basics of value-based care and population health. So what is value-based care? There's a lot of conversation in the, in the environment around this, and there's certainly a lot of different definitions that exist. And really, I like to say it, it, where you stand on, on your position of what value-based care is depends on where you sit and where, where your focus is. Uh, for us, value-based care is a delivery model. It's a way of providing patient-centered care in a way that provides high quality outcomes 
at affordable costs. So it's based on the idea that you know providers should be rewarded for providing better outcomes for patients rather than just the number of visits or the number of services or RBUs that are provided in caring for a patient. It'd be um, The value comes from providing good outcomes for the care that's been provided. It's a shift from traditional fee-for-service models. A lot of us are still in a fee-for-service environment, um, and that's fine, um, and that there's some value in there as well. But being paid for outcomes is a new way of thinking. It's a little different than being paid for in inputs, and I'll discuss that a little bit more in a future slide. There's a lot of encouragement of collaboration in the patient-centered models of value-based care to really make sure it's the people providing the care, the physicians and the advanced practice providers, are really in line with what the patient's desires and needs are so that we can provide the highest quality outcomes uh, for everyone involved. A little history of value-based care probably could even go back to um, earlier on the slide in terms of when Medicare and Medicaid came on the scene. Um, but in a little bit more modern times in the uh, 1980s, uh, you know, the Budget Balanced, the Balanced Budget Act of uh, 1997 um, really kind of cemented a lot of these value-based care environments. Moving forward into the early 2000s, we had a Medicare Modernization Act that did a couple of things, one of which um, was the Part D prescription drug benefit, um, which was new, and the advent of the Medicare Advantage program, um, which has a slow ramp up but is really gaining speed as we as we move forward today. Uh, moving forward, we had the really pivotal pivotal um, legislation in the Affordable Care Act of 2010. Uh, it created a lot of new innovations from CMS, including Medicare Shared Savings uh, Program ACO style. Um, the idea of trying to start reducing some of these costs, and we'll talk about where these costs have gone here in a couple of slides coming up. Um, MACRA and CHIP have come through, and those of us that are in some of these um, innovation projects like Primary Care Plus or now Primary Care First or CPC Plus have seen where CMS or Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services are trying to drive this uh, value-based care moving forward. So interestingly, you know, there's a lot of different ways to improve value. And, you know, it's an equation of putting higher outcomes in terms of higher quality over reduce, reduction in costs. And uh, Sandeep was actually part of a, a, a um, presentation, a publication that speaks to this. And I'd like to turn it over to him to give a little bit more details on that. Thanks, Dr. Clark. Yeah, the trillion-dollar problem, this is the elephant in the room, uh, as Dr. Mao mentioned in the introduction. Uh, $4.3 trillion of spend in healthcare every year, 20% of our GDP, and unfortunately we're not seeing that train slow down. We did an analysis in our, in our ACO and really tried to understand how these dollars are spent in American healthcare. And unfortunately the punchline here is that a one in four dollars that we spend is duplicative or unnecessary care. Uh, when we all think about, you know, the, the patient journeys and how we're caring for folks and, you know, where they may be getting care in siloed uh, different systems. And we all realize that this is, this is obvious, but there's a major opportunity here just by eliminating the, the defects here, by eliminating the duplicative and the uh, unnecessary care, we can make a major dent in American healthcare, uh, but really focusing on the tenants of value-based care are really moving upstream from that and, and focusing on those quality and experience things. Thanks, Cindy. So 
Quality is the foundation of value-based care. That's what this is about. It's patient-centered, it's outcome-based. Value-based care is where quality lives. And some of the comments made earlier about CVS and some of the work they're doing was to help shore up the quality of care that they're giving to the patients under their um, environments. So what are these goals of value-based care? Well, we've said it before, and you know, I'll go through this one quickly, but improving quality and efficiency, uh, making sure that we are providing the right care at the right time at the right place in the way that the patient needs so that we're focusing on improving the quality and focusing on the efficiency at which we provide that care and having ways in which that can be done to identify avoidable costs and try and find ways to reduce those. So why does value-based care matter? Um, you know, I think we've shown that there's a lot of space um, for improvement in this. A couple of my slides coming up will show us where the United States stacks up in terms of current cost of care versus outcomes. Um, it's pretty shocking, some of the numbers. Uh, this value-based care is a way of providing care that we would all want to have for ourselves and our loved ones. We're trying to achieve the quadruple aim of healthcare where we're managing uh, a, a effective access to high quality cost affordable care in a way that's both meaningful to the patients and the clinical teams providing that care. Um, we do risk assessment and we'll talk a little bit more about that. We do chronic disease management. Uh, anytime someone's admitted to the hospital for an exacerbation of COPD or CHF is an opportunity where that could have been handled in an ambulatory environment if that chronic disease management had just been recognized as a need a little bit earlier and tried to identify it, remote patient monitoring, other health uh, infrastructure opportunities. Um, you know, we're looking at things like STAR scores, of course, and gap closure, uh, looking to make sure people are getting the recommended screenings that we know improve health outcomes both cancer screenings, immunizations, routine care that is provided at high quality by all of us in the primary care world. That complex longitudinal care, this is where the quality really hits the road. This is where primary care shines and why so many of these organizations are really interested in embedding into primary care environments because that's where the complex longitudinal care of patients occurs. Uh, those trade-offs that happen as patients go in and out of different parts of our system, those transitions are so fraught with peril for patients. Um, and having a way to really intentionally make sure that we're following right next to our patients through their whole journey of care in a way that's meaningful and impactful. Uh, I, you know, I don't know about everyone else, you know, if one of my patients ends up in a, in a skilled nursing facility, I don't always know once they've been discharged out of the SNF. And so, you know, there's just, there's transitions of care that really can be modified to help reduce readmission rates and improve outcomes for people. Um, a lot of work spent on palliative care and really end-of-life care. There's a slide coming up that shows where the spend happens, and we know that most of the spend, unfortunately, happens at the last few years of life. And is that, while that's important, is that where we want to invest our limited resources? So looking for improvements in quality outcomes, trying to, you know, necessary hospital admissions will always happen, and that's why we have hospitals but there's a lot of readmissions that were unnecessary and could have been prevented. There's a lot of ED utilization that really doesn't need to occur and could free our EDs up to really take care of those really acutely ill patients and reduce some of the wait time involved in there as well. 
um, improving on pharmacy spend with all the conversations around the cost of insulin and other things going on right now uh, is definitely part of this conversation. And interesting to see that vertical integration that Sandeep was mentioning earlier when we have major pharmacy chains part of this equation now. So value is the equation that determines success in any endeavor, right? Value. So what is value? For, for us, one of the things that, just a simplistic way of looking at value, but I think simple is sometimes best, and that is value is quality divided by cost. So what are the outcomes? What's the patient's experience? Did they get the care that they wanted and have a good outcome as a result of that care? And was it provided in a way that was cost effective to the system? You can go to an emergency room with uh, you know a sore a, a ear infection, and and you'll receive high quality care and get really good um, services for that ear infection. Um, it will come at a premium price that you could have perhaps seen your your local primary care physician or an urgent care and receive that same high quality of care, but at a fraction of the cost, thereby redistributing those costs and values across the system to where it's more needed. Uh, as an example. So I won't dwell on too long, but the graph shows an I have a graph up that shows a very interesting expenditure of uh, health as has been talked about uh, early as a percent of our GDP um, going from the 1970s where it was about 7% of our gross domestic product was uh, healthcare expenditures, now well into the 20% range, which is just an amazing thing to think about, that 20% of all of our GDP is occurring in a healthcare environment. And right now, the majority of that is still in a fee-for-service model, which is incentivizing um, doing uh, work, incentivizing utilization, rather than incentivizing high-quality outcomes. As a result of that, on the next slide, I'm showing life expectancy from birth uh, versus healthcare spending per capita. Um, there's a lot of developed countries on the list here. Uh, on the uh, far right lower side of the graph, unfortunately, is where United States finds ourselves. Um, so we have by far the highest per capita spending in terms of healthcare. We, we are alone on the far right side of that graph. Um, you would hope that if we were going to be spending that much, that we would at least have some good outcomes, that we'd have really high life expectancy, for example. Um, but we're pretty much under the bar for all of those as well, and we're being um, surpassed by just about every other country, developed country in, in the world in terms of things like life expectancy from birth. Uh, so it's really dramatic um, to see what we're getting for the spend. Where is the spend occurring? Well, 5% of the people account for over half of all the spending, and it happens later in life, as we mentioned earlier. The bottom 50% of spenders account for only 3% of total healthcare spend. So there's a very small population of patients that are really driving all of the cost, and a lot of it has to do with just how we're choosing to allocate our resources and what that utilization is. Um, so there's a huge opportunity, and this is where ACOs and other value-based care organizations really spend a lot of our time looking at these cohorts of patients and saying, where can we help make sure that we're improving the quality of life, the quality of care for these patients that are so expensive to care for? So a couple of uh, graphs to just kind of walk through some of the volume versus value-based revenue models. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's interesting to think of it as a continuum. 
I've mentioned before managing against inputs versus managing against outcomes. So a way I like to think about the journey of volume-based or fee-for-service type care versus value-based revenue models is that when you're in that left side of my graph here, which is the low-risk fee-for-service model, the traditional payment system, you're managing against predictable inputs. You, you can model and, and use historical information to say, I know generally this many patients come through the hospital per year. I can then create staffing ratios and, and other ways of which I am uh, allocating costs to predict what's going to happen. And it's a very comfortable model for um, you know, the finance people uh, to kind of really understand we know how many visits, we know how many procedures are happening. On the other end of the spectrum, of course, is volume-based revenue. And so that is a little bit scarier for some people because what you're doing is you're putting some risk into the equation. You don't know how much revenue you're going to generate by the end, and it's going to be very dependent upon the quality outcomes that you produce to achieve it. There's a lot of risk, but with risk comes reward, and that's why so many of these organizations that Sandeep spoke to earlier are in the game, and we'll speak about some of the innovations happening in the future as well. I'll just quickly move through these next two slides. This one just kind of reinforcing the fact that in that traditional fee-for-service model, payment is tied to providing a service. You know, how many widgets do you make? How many visits do you have? How many RVUs do you create? There's no incentivization to do anything that's outside of the context of a visit or an episode of care. Um, it, in, it incentivizes use, not outcomes. A pure value-based model then has some sharing of financial risk across different payers, um, and you're rewarding outcomes. You have a focus on prevention and care. You focus on what's happening in the patient's environment, the social determinants of health and other models. OSU Wexner Medical Center has been on a journey of care, as a lot of us have, moving from a fee-for-service model, the primary care um, medical home, CPC Plus, bundles, and so forth, and we're moving forward through that. It is not always linear. Sometimes there's starts and stops and you back up a little bit and move forward, but it is transformative and it is marching forward. Uh, just a quick note on our ACO, just to give some perspective on things that are happening here at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical System. We are in a shared savings track and we have about 13,000 Medicare beneficiaries. We've had a slow but gradual decrease in the total cost of care over time. Um, it's hard to reduce the total cost of care, um, but we have successfully been moving in that direction. There's a couple of strategies that we use to succeed in that environment. We try and reduce unnecessary utilization. We maintain quality performance. We look at risk capture, and we do active panel management. Keys to succeeding in value-based care. These are things we're all doing already and you'll be doing more of. Uh, I'm going to move past this slide um, to the next one. It has pretty much the same information on it. These are kind of the four main tenets of how you succeed in a value-based care environment where there's downside risk on the table. So you identify and reduce unnecessary costs and utilization. That does take a pretty sophisticated IT infrastructure maintain and enhance your quality outcomes. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the care happens. You're making sure you're capturing that risk adjustment, those HCC codes, those hierarchical condition category codes that so many of us are familiar with, um, really helps to identify what the risk level is of the complexity of the care you're providing for your patients, and then managing those panels intentionally through attribution methodology. 
Uh, I won't read through this slide, but just an idea of some of these other measures that you can take in terms of providing the right place of care in a patient-centered manner. Health equity and disparities is key to success in this environment. We have to look for ways to control our costs, and we must optimize our risk scores to capture our reimbursement rates to make this effective and, and sufficient, scalable, sustainable. A uh, quick note on HCCs um, and annual wellness visits. So the Medicare annual wellness visits, very common methodology by which attribution has occurred. So there's a lot of different ways patients can be attributed to a primary care provider in ACO and other environments. The best and most uh, solid, stickiest way is through an annual wellness visit, which cements attribution typically for about two years to that primary care provider. Uh, they're a great time to close care gaps and improve your HCC scores, which helps set benchmarks and adjust per member per month payments. And now I'm going to turn over to an interesting discussion on some future directions in the value-based care environment to Sandeep. Thanks, Dr. Clark. So now we've chatted about some of the key trends in retail and the verticalization of healthcare. We've talked a little bit about the key aspects of value-based care and population health, panel management. Now we want to shift a little bit into showing where we think the industry is going to head and uh, a few data points to, to uh, suggest why. So Clearly, you know, we, we mentioned earlier that the Medicare population is one of the major focus areas for a lot of these value-based organizations, a lot of the ACO tracks, CMS is looking at this, and, and here's why, is, is despite all of these efforts, year over year, we're continuing to see per capita spending on our Medicare uh, population go up and up and up, and multiply that now on the right side by the uh, percentage of our, our population who is aging into this group. And we have an impending healthcare catastrophe, as bad as it is right now. In the next decade, the utilization, the spend, if we can't bend this cost curve, uh, you know, we're looking at 30 and 40 percent of our GDP, in which, you know, is, is clearly unsustainable. So the reason we are seeing so much activity in this, you know, 10,000 patients, people aging into Medicare every single day, we talked about Oak Street being 150,000 members, you know, every two weeks a new Oak Street is born in this country needing to serve seniors with particular member uh, with particular needs and, and issues. Um, one nuance in the Medicare space that we're starting to, to also take note of is the shift towards Medicare Advantage. For any of you that are, you know, in value-based care arrangements yourselves or in an, uh, an ACO arrangement, you might be hearing more and more about Medicare Advantage. And, you know, just to give a little bit of background, uh, Medicare Advantage is a uh, privatized form of Medicare that patients can select and, and opt into. Often these MA plans offer much richer benefits. You know, for example, in, in traditional fee-for-service Medicare, uh, there are no vision benefits or dental or transportation. Uh, with, with, with MA, you can build those sort of benefit packages in and, and really help uh, individuals meet their, their care needs. Um, for, for clinicians, you know, having patients in these Medicare Advantage plans can be beneficial, although there are oftentimes limited networks and narrower scopes. There are often these much bigger benefits that we mentioned. If, if I have a patient who is a diabetic and uh, gets onto a particular MA plan, they might have all of their insulin covered at zero copay and their needles and supplies covered at zero copay. Their endocrinology visit four times a year is covered. And, 
and there's transportation benefit there so they can get to their visits. Uh, there's a mom's meals, you know, particular diabetic uh, uh, meal tray thing that I can order for patients. And all of those are available with Medicare Advantage uh, rather than, than Medicare. And that's, I think, why we're starting to see uh, such a shift here in this population. As you can see here, we talked a lot about this movement from you know, traditional fee-for-service uh, into more shared savings and value-based, population-based payments. If you just uh, play out these, these rows one by one, Medicare Advantage we just talked about, uh, there is still a fair amount in traditional fee-for-service, but you can see they're really trying to push more into these shared savings and these bundles, these population-based uh, payments. Same thing with original Medicare. Uh, they tend to focus more on this pay for performance, which is probably what most of us are used to, which is continuing to deliver fee-for-service care, but getting an extra quality bonus if, if we reach certain uh, metrics. And while that's great, it still incentivizes volume uh, in, in certain instances over the value. Uh, Two, two interesting ones here is, is what the trend that we're seeing in Medicaid. Uh, Medicaid is still predominantly on that fee-for-service uh, side. We are starting to see that shift, however. Here in Ohio, just this year, we've seen a, a major expansion in the Medicaid plans, and, and they are coming in as managed Medicaid, meaning they are trying to control these costs of care and drive great outcomes and serve particular populations. Um, but I think Medicaid, we will probably see lagging a little bit as far as moving towards the right in this graph, towards these population-based payments. Uh, commercial insurance is, is an interesting one because, you know, in most health systems, uh, we basically break even on our Medicare patients. We lose money on our Medicaid patients. And commercial payers are really the ones subsidizing most of American health care. But increasingly, these commercial payers are saying that this is unsustainable. We can't bear the burden of 20% cost year over year going up. Same thing with our employers. And so more and more commercial insurers will also be pushing folks into these uh, at least pay for performance, but certainly the shared savings and bundles types programs over time. But the point here is to, uh, to show that, you know, these are trends that will continue. Medicare has stated publicly that they would like 100% of all payments to be in a value-based arrangement by 2030. Uh, they had had another goal of, I think, 50% by 2025. We'll see if we get there. Uh, they have a similar goal for Medicaid. As I mentioned, that might be a little bit slower. But in the next few years, you know, the vast majority of payments will be coming through these value-based arrangements and, therefore, the, the importance of understanding these, these tenants. Here's an interesting one that, that is not necessarily focused on primary care, but is in the value-based care space and is an example of what we're seeing for, from shifting rule changes that ultimately change how care is delivered. On the inpatient side, what we're showing here is the cost of a total hip arthroplasty on the inpatient side being 12320 The middle section is what we call a hospital outpatient department. That's still $12,000. Then you see on the right here, this ambulatory surgery center is really where you start to see the savings. What has happened over time is, is, is more pressure from payers has asked, they've asked health systems to 
try to be creative and move these kinds of procedures like a hip arthroplasty outside of the hospital. Why does this patient need to be admitted for a week in, in an inpatient unit? We have great data and evidence to say that the quality outcomes can be just as good and, and even better in certain circumstances moving into these ambulatory type uh, surgery centers. And so, you know, we'll see, I think, a, a major shift to more and more services pushed into those ASCs. Um, there will, with that, come more scrutiny to make sure that the, the quality is maintained and that we are considering whether it is appropriate or not to be in these uh, type settings. But, uh, you know, as I, when I was at university hospitals, as, as someone who is uh, engaging with all of our payers, even things like uh, infusions of, of infliximab, you know, we are doing in an outpatient uh, or in an uh, infusion center in our hospitals, the payers were coming to us and essentially saying, we are no longer going to pay for that claim. You need to either move them into an ASC. We have organizations that are doing this in the home, so we know that you can do it in an ambulatory setting. So increasingly, I think we're all going to have to understand what these various rule changes are, what the pressure is from the payers, and how that's going to shift care outside of various sites and ultimately impact patients. This is one other uh, example of this that just goes into a bit more detail. When CMS comes through and puts these final rules in place, it really shifts how uh, you know, American healthcare is delivered, eliminating uh, the entire list of, of conditions that can only be treated inpatient um, is a major shift. And now that opens up the opportunity to move things into these other care settings. Uh, now, as folks are getting more pressure to move out of those hospital outpatient departments into the ASCs, CMS is now, um, you know, approving that various procedures can happen there. And on this right side, what we'll see even more is, is folks are moving into this outpatient setting. So uh, we've permanently covered a lot of these uh, services like telehealth and um, virtual care. Uh, we are increasingly doing things like hospital at home and home-based care. And you see, you know, the CVSs and, and others of the world moving into this space as well. And this is because this is what the payers are, are sort of pushing towards, including CMS. So important for us to understand, especially as primary care clinicians, that many of these, these procedures, these interventions that were perhaps happening in, in more acute settings are likely transitioning out uh, into more of our world. So we'll wrap up here shortly. You know, we want to be clear that there haven't always been successful programs in value-based care. Uh, this, this top article is by Brad Smith. He was actually the CEO of Aspire, which is one of the organizations we showed. They were acquired by Anthem. He went on to then become the director of CMMI. Uh, as Dr. Clark mentioned in his sort of history slide talking about the evolution of CMS and the, the innovation programs, CMMI is really the one that has tested many of these value-based arrangements with both ACOs and health systems as well as these kind of uh, venture-backed primary care organizations. And, and this article was interesting because ultimately it showed that out of the dozens of demonstration projects we've um, engaged with over the past 10 years or so, only a couple of them have actually shown true reduction in cost, true improvement in quality that have been sustained for years and years. Um, I think there's a real opportunity for us to distill down what those learnings are from those important programs that showed real success and double down on that and really help expand those kinds of programs that actually work. 
there is this other there, this other aspect for those of you who know Dr. Don Berwick used to uh, lead the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and I think ran for Senate in Massachusetts, but healthcare leader. Um, he's had a series really of, of scathing articles in JAMA and others talking about this move by retail, by for-profit entities coming into healthcare under the guise of value-based care, but you know, really leading to those, those multi-billion dollar type of acquisitions and ultimately is there greed, is there profit that is driving some of this? You know, I would argue that there's still improvement in value-based care in a very significant way over traditional fee-for-service care. There's certainly, you know, there's certainly, you know, opportunities to clean it up a little bit and to ensure that we're paying for the right kinds of things. But uh, ultimately, we hope that today we've, we've talked to you about a lot of different aspects of value-based care. And while there are still many aspects to unpack and to study and to continue understanding, uh, we believe that this is really the, the path forward for American healthcare. So we'd like to thank you for your time and attention. Uh, that was our, our presentation portion. We, we are uh, excited to speak a little bit with Dr. Mao and with one another and, and have a bit of a discussion now. Thank you so much, both of you. It was really helpful to hear your perspectives and to run through all that very useful information. Now, uh, first question for you, Sandeep. How do you balance the sometimes competing interests of controlling costs and providing high value? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Dr. Mao. And I think controlling costs is a, a tricky one because ultimately what we're not talking about is, is uh, rationing care, essentially. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about is eliminating unnecessary care and care that actually hurts people in many ways. So we want to focus in value-based care on doing the right thing, on uh, treating patients in the right place at the right time. And uh, when we do that, costs naturally come down. Okay. Um, and then Aaron, kind of somewhat related to that, I would say, is patient satisfaction. Um, how does that play with value-based care? I mean, sometimes I feel like some, my patients are the ones driving certain tests or procedures to be performed that I may not feel is necessary. Yeah, well, that is definitely an equation that we have to figure out. Patient satisfaction, if we think of it in terms of patient outcomes and, and helping them through their journey of care is our role. And one of the nice things in a value-based care environment is, as we mentioned earlier on one of the slides, a lot of the uh, more innovative places in working in that environment are having smaller panel sizes. Mm -hmm. So you have ability to manage, say, 400 patients or 500 patients instead of 2,500 patients. It gives you the opportunity to have more meaningful conversations and discussions with your patients, their caregivers, help them understand what choices are best for them to help make sure that while they're still an equal part of the decision-making process that you have the understanding of how best to take care of them. Okay, but doesn't that de-incentivize taking care of some of the more complex or high-risk patients? Well, there certainly could be a model in which people were trying to avoid the complex <laughs> patients so that you sort of cherry-pick the, the healthier, younger populations. But the other thing that does happen in these models, and CMS has been careful to try and in, in, uh, have as part of the model, 
is around risk capture. And so I briefly talked about hierarchical condition categories or HCC mm -hmm. codes. It's an opportunity for us to really balance out the complexity of care that we provide our, that our patients bring to us so that we can say, this population is complex. This population costs more to take care of because of the complexity, and we represent that in the coding that we do. Mm -hmm. Now, Sandeep, uh, value-based care, you know, as you guys have said, is very much linked to quality. And in order to increase the quality, you need data, you need information, and you need help to do quality improvement. So how does an average primary care doctor get the resources, um, or how do they manage this extra additional burden of needing administrative support, data support, IT support, to get that information to even do this work? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think something we all think a lot about. And you know, I, I put myself in the shoes of someone listening to this this webinar and and thinking, okay, this is great, but what do I actually do now? How can I do that when I'm seeing 25 and 30 patients a day and don't have the resources to invest? So it's an important one, and I think there's a few things. One is you know, there are these value-based organizations out there that are sort of built from the ground up, bespoke to care for populations like this that build in all that infrastructure for you and allow you to come in as a clinician, really focus on caring for that patient and caring for that panel and not having to invest in those. But, you know, I'd say for most of us who are in the traditional quote unquote healthcare system, that's where the power of things like ACOs, where, you know, organizations that are looking to really uh, help independent clinicians come in and and they will provide things like the data analytics, like the care management teams to help uh, proactively outreach to these patients, like the views and the, the, the shifts to these different uh, sites of care. So I'd say, you know, for the average primary care doc out there who's trying to figure out how to get into this, you know, reach out to your local ACOs, your local health systems, explore some of these uh, organizations that help empower independent uh, clinicians to take on this value-based space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in some ways I think this is going to be really great because with my experience with telehealth, patients really like getting services at home. It's a lot more convenient for them. So having the ability to get their infusions at home or whatnot Absolutely. must be very um, helpful as well. Um, but what about, I, I know, um, Aaron, you briefly touched on healthcare disparities. What are um, some ways to help to make sure we address health disparities in value-based models? And I, I think either of you could answer sure, that question. I'll, I'll start and feel, sure. feel, feel free, Dr. Clark. So I think, you know, we think about disparities a lot in the value-based space. I think ultimately it comes down to understanding our different populations and the different needs about them. Uh, many of these value-based organizations have identified that social determinants, for example, are major drivers of downstream utilization outcomes. So uh, they are also focused on many cases, low-income neighborhoods and, and populations. Uh, one other thing I'll mention that Dr. Clark may have more experience with is in a lot of these ACO relationships, infusing data with um, understanding you know, who someone is from a socioeconomic standpoint, whether they may need services like transportation or food delivery like we talked about, value-based care helps us pull up and understand those unique needs of each population rather than being reactive to the patient that's in front of us at that moment. Mm -hmm. And who usually sets the outcomes that, um, that we all have to reach? Who decides what the, those outcomes are? I think a lot of folks, you know, ultimately do, but, you know, CMS and most of the payers, I would say, are the ones pushing what are, you know, what is high quality as, as measured by CMS? It's STARS scores, and those are things like 
preventive screenings like Dr. Clark mentioned and controlling blood pressure and diabetes and getting folks on the right kinds of medications. So these are typically national type benchmarks that are, are set typically by the payers. I don't know if you have any other experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. The, the payer is definitely driving this, and it's all under the auspice of CMS's direction. Mm -hmm. However, I would also say that as clinicians, we have an important role to use our voice and to mm -hmm. advocate for ourselves and our patients that we care for mm -hmm. by reaching out to your legislators and others to help make sure that your voice is part of that conversation. Okay, that's a really good point, because if we don't all agree on what the important outcomes are, um, including our patients, then, um, then that, that would be problematic. Um, now, I know you mentioned um, life expectancy. Is that something that we're looking at at all as an outcome? Uh, any measure of health is going to be one of the outcomes, right? So mm -hmm. life expectancy with a high quality of life is absolutely one of the things that we look for. Are there unnecessary causes of premature death that are going on that could be modified in a way to enhance the patient's journey through their life in a way that's meaningful for them? So life mm -hmm. expectancy is a measure that is looked at um, in the context of chronic disease management. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does seem a little conflicting because if a patient lives longer, then they would accrue additional healthcare costs, I would imagine, so. Yeah, and that's part of the equation, right, is looking at when, what dollars are we spending at the end of life and what are we spending it on? And is it generally seen as high value, high quality for the individuals involved, helping mm -hmm. them make decisions at end of life in a way that's meaningful for the patient and their caregivers? Okay, well, one last question mm -hmm. is long-term scalability. What are some ways that we can make sure, you know, the value-based models that we're put, putting in place are scalable and sustainable in the long run? Well, certainly from a primary care perspective, making sure that these models continue to give dollars that are separated from visit-related um, revenue, that you have capitation, you have per-member-per-month payments, you have ways in which the clin clinics and the clinicians can receive funding to do the work. It takes time, it takes energy, it takes investment of resources. And as we moved into these shared savings models, um, being able to account for those dollars in a way that you can then strategically increase staff needs. You can add uh, the resource of perhaps a social worker or maybe part of a clinical pharmacist to your team mm -hmm. to help really expand your reach. You're adjusting, you're addressing the social determinants of health that the patients bring to you in a way that's meaningful. And in that way, it's very scalable and, and definitely a sustainable model once you get to mm -hmm. that future state. Okay, perfect. Thank you both so much. That was extremely helpful and I think very enlightening to get uh, a perspective of our healthcare system overall. Well, we're going to finish up today's program with a final key point from each presenter. Aaron? Population health offers us a pathway to showing how we can provide equitable, effective, efficient, safe access to high quality care at a reasonable price. And Sandeep? The verticalization and integration of healthcare is amongst upon us, and the tenets of value-based care are knowable uh, and things that we should understand and uh, feedback into our own practices as well. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to claim your CME credit and your ABIM MOC points for watching by taking the post-test on our website, ccme.osu.edu. You can also find all of our programs on the website. Next week, Dr. Sabrina Palacios and Micah Skeens from Nationwide Children's will be here to discuss COVID-19 impact on pediatrics. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.